Bibles and, uh, and the Bibles there in the seats anyway, it's on page 825, Matthew chapter 20. You might remember that last week we started uh, our summer series uh, called uh, uh, Stories That Jesus Told. Everybody loves the parables, the stories that Jesus told. Many of them are familiar to us. And uh, last week we studied the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We should always begin with the end in mind and we found out that death is not the end. And so Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain, looks at what happens after we die, takes these two men, and uh, describes for us, you know, a a scene from the other side. And uh, so much is on the line with our connection between our lives now and how we will spend eternity. And so if you missed that last week, uh, you can read it in Luke chapter 16. But this morning, I'd like to uh, invite you to consider with me a story in Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus tells about workers and their pay about workers and getting paid. Uh, So many of the stories that Jesus told uh, are about how the values, the values of the kingdom of this world are so different than the values of the kingdom of heaven. So many of the parables describe the, the radical difference between the values that we embrace in this world and the values of the kingdom of God. They're so reversed And uh, I think that's why the Christian life is a struggle. I think that's why it's hard to develop a genuine faith, because the values of the world in which we live are the exact opposite, in fact, of the values of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to um, establish. And so when we're locked into the values of this world, and we don't even know it because we're raised in it and we're enculturated with the values that we grow up with and so forth, but when we take those values and we try to put them onto God, we, we get dissonance. It doesn't work. You can't take the values of the kingdom of this world and put them onto God and expect God to act according to the values of this world. Instead, uh, God invites us to uh, embrace the values of the kingdom of God. You might remember that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is a whole different deal coming from a whole different place, the kingdom of heaven. And so um, you might notice in this story that Jesus tells, uh, the first uh, 16 verses of Matthew chapter 20, that the verse right before Jesus tells the story, back in uh, chapter 19, um, says this, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What's that? What kind of a value is that? Sounds un-American, right? And then if you go all the way to the end of this story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus says the same thing. He says, so the last will be first and the first last. So it would seem that this story that Jesus tells is designed to illustrate this principle that the first will be last and the last will be first. It's the opposite value of the way that we think. And so many, again, of Jesus' stories are about that. Um, So the principle Jesus states here is sort of one of his favorites, if you will. If you just go back to um, uh, Matthew 18 and verse 4, uh, Jesus says the same thing a little different way. He said, um, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles themselves and becomes like a child ends up being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, in our culture, you know, uh, it's when you grow up that you're the greatest and not when you're childlike, you know. And so what's Jesus really saying? If you um, go to Matthew 23, 
Again, I'm just uh, trying to illustrate that this is a favorite theme of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, in verse 12, uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Well, an opposite way of thinking from the kingdom of this world. And so this principle is stated by Jesus before the story, and and then um, in, in Matthew chapter 20, and, and it's the end of the story. And the whole story, I, th <clears throat> I think, is prompted by a question that Peter asks. So if you back up into chapter 19 again and uh, go to verse 27, uh, Peter asks a question. You've got to love Peter, right? Peter says this. He says, look, you know, we've left everything and followed you. What then is in it for me? What's in it for me? You know, uh, Jesus has been talking here, and um, he said, you know, um, rich people have a tough time getting into the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter's like, you know, well, what about us? Like, we've left everything. What's in it for us? And so Jesus responds, and here's what he says. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a lot of people who think that this parable that we're going to study today has a lot to do with the Jewish people because they were first, but when Christ came, they rejected him, and so they became last, and uh, that Jesus is talking to that uh, disparity. But look at this, uh, verse 29. Everybody who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first today will be last then, see? A whole reversal of values. And so Peter wants to know, you know, what's this question? And Jesus says, listen, anybody who does anything for me will be greatly rewarded. And uh, you can trust me. And so this story that Jesus tells in the first 16 verses of chapter 20 is prompted, I think, by Peter's question. So chapter 20, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like... The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the kingdom that Jesus came to set up, the kingdom that's not of this world, is like a master who owns a vineyard, probably, you know, grapes, a grape vineyard. And um, he goes out before 6 o'clock in the morning to hire some pickers, to hire some laborers to come and work in his the, the, the day went from 6 to 6 back in those days. They didn't start at 8 and go quit at 4. It was sun up to sundown. And so it was basically 6 to 6. So before 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, this guy goes out to hire some laborers to come work in his vineyard. And uh, he says to them in verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Made an agreement, I'll pay you this much for a day. It was kind of minimum wage. Uh, it was a day's work. It was a day's pay. Uh, and they all agreed to go into the uh, vineyard and to work. And then about uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, verse 3, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So about 9 o'clock, he goes out and finds some more people idle, doing nothing, standing around. And he hires them, and he tells them, look, I'll take care of you. You can trust me. Go into the field and work. Whatever's right, I'll give you. Then about 12 o'clock in the afternoon, 
Um, it says here, and going out at 9 o'clock, and he told them, you go, verse 5. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock, he went out and he found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, well, because nobody has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So all day long, we're not told why, but the owner of the vineyard goes out, finds people who aren't working, and invites them to come and work into the vineyard. Uh, maybe the master you know, looks at the work being done, and he says, my goodness, this is never going to get done today. I need more people. And so he goes back to the marketplace, and he hires these people to come and to work into his field. Uh, maybe he just wants more people to be employed so they can take care of their families. And he just goes out and, and looks for the people and has them come and uh, work for him. But here's the shocking part of the parable. Here's the, um, you know, part of the, the kingdom of God that's the exact opposite of the way the kingdom of the world works. And verse 8 says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last person up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. They got a full day's pay for working an hour. I'm like, I would like to have a job like that. They got a full day's pay for working just one hour. And uh, verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they're going to receive more because each of, but each one of them also received a denarius. So what do they say? And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master. They grumbled at the master. What are they saying? It's not fair. That's not fair. I deserve more. Right? And so they grumble and they complain. Even though they agreed at the front end to work for a day's pay, uh, they grumbled and they grumbled at the master. Not grumbling at the other workers. They grumbled at the master. And, of course, in this parable, it's God is the master and the world is the vineyard and God owns everything and God's the one who calls us to work for him and so on. And so um, here's what they said. Uh, These last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They grumbled. They complained. Uh, Kingdom values do not make sense to worldly people. Kingdom values, people who have not been transformed by the grace of God cannot understand kingdom values. They just don't make sense. If you're focused on the values of this world and we try to apply them to God, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Until we've been transformed, until the spirit of God has changed, you know. Um, And so look what happens. They grumble. And um, Jesus says, the master replies like this. Um, he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Isn't it my business what I do with what belongs to me? Isn't it God's prerogative to do what he wants to do with what he owns? 
You know? And so it's a very interesting uh, reversal of values. It goes against our sensibilities. And uh, in response to, you know, this isn't fair, in response to the grumbling, uh, I think this parable surfaces the whole issue of envy and jealousy. The whole issue of envy and jealousy. Uh, Envy is the idea that God owes me. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, Guilt is the realization that I owe you. I feel guilty if I avoid you. I want to stay away from you. Well, somehow I've offended you and, and, and I owe you. And that's really the idea behind guilt. Anger is the idea that you owe me and I'm angry at you. And uh, because you owe me. It's always about debt, right? Um, greed is the idea that I owe me. I work hard, you know, I deserve this, and so on and so forth. And so I owe me, and uh, we become greedy. Um, and, and, and then this value, the idea of envy or the idea of jealousy, is the idea that God owes me. God's not being fair, and God's the only one who could fix this and he isn't fixing it. It's not fair. And uh, I would suggest to you that when love goes out of relationships, whether it's with God or with a human being, it's because one of these worldly values has come in. We think that somebody owes somebody something, and when we hold on to it, when we hold on to it, it's a worldly value, not a kingdom value, but when we hold on to that, the relationship disintegrates. Uh, The relationship encounters dissonance. And... uh, When God's love dominates, when the kingdom of God dominates, then guilt gives way to confession. One of the great privileges of being a Christian is knowing that when I confess my sins, there's forgiveness waiting for me. And so it's not a big deal to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You know, I did this wrong because I have this understanding of the kingdom of God. Forgiveness and grace just flow freely. And so it's not a big deal to be able to... So that uh, idea of guilt gives way to confession. Uh, Anger gives way to forgiveness. Uh, When we live kingdom values, Matthew chapter 18, in fact, talks about this. You know, when somebody offends you, here's what you should do. Uh, When you're greedy and you're selfish, the solution is generosity. When you feel like, you know, uh, I owe me and you're living to kind of just build up yourself, uh, when we begin to meet God and we care more about him than we care about ourselves, it begins with a tithe. When I say, you know, you are more important than me and the first part of my Uh, income is going to go to you. When I'm jealous or envious because somebody has more than me, and it can be anything, Uh, somebody has more talent than I do. Somebody has better health than I do. Why did I get stuck with these genes, you know? Uh, Somebody has better looks than I do. Somebody has a better family background than I do. I was speaking to a guy this week, uh, just an absolutely horrible family background, you know, and uh, he was a little bit angry because, like, How come I got stuck with this terrible family? Um, More money than I have. Bigger church than I have. uh, Better circumstances. Whatever it is, I'm thinking God owes me. Now, it's easy to get this idea of jealousy or envy putting on the people, but the truth is, when you think deeper about it, the truth is you're angry at God, the master. The story is telling us, look, the, the people who are feeling shortchanged, they don't get mad at the other people. They're mad at the master because he's the only one who can fix these inequities, and he hasn't. And so when I'm jealous or I'm envious uh, because somebody has more than I do and so forth, it's about my relationship with God. And so in the Bible, in the book of James, you might, uh, 
You know, uh, everybody's read James, it seems to me, at one time or another. But you might recall in James chapter 3, James asks a really interesting question. He says, you know, why do people grumble? What's behind quarrels and fighting? Why is that? Why do you fight with other people? And uh, most of us would say, well, you know, uh, it's, it's the other people. And we'd tell them what's wrong with them and so on and so forth. But in James chapter 3 and verse 14, here's what James says. He says, if you have bitter jealousy, jealousy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not a kingdom value, envy and jealousy. It doesn't come from heaven, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. The devil loves it when he can create envy and jealousy between people, divide people, and so on and so forth. Uh, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, listen to this, open to reason. The wisdom that comes from God is open to reason. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's quite a list. So then James asked this question, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. What what causes quarrels and what causes fights among people? Why do married people fight? Why do friends part? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. Are you kidding me? Who believes that? That what's behind my fights and my quarrels and my crabbing is me. And something that's wrong in my heart. We always think it's the other person, right? Well, here's all the faults in this person. And here's all the shortcomings in this person. And here's what's wrong with them. And blah, blah, blah. And that's why I'm off the wall. No, James says. It's inside of you. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? Isn't it this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet, you can't obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Who thinks that all their arguments are coming from inside of them? (laughs) Who thinks like that? James, the Bible, kingdom values. And this story that Jesus tells, envy and jealousy result from inside of us. The real cause of our problems is our own desires, which come from within us, and they battle within us. And I think what the Bible is trying to say is that our arguments come from inside of me. And James says that a a fight or an argument, a grumbling, comes from this battle going on inside of you that erupts and spills all over to the next person. And what's the problem? You want something and you can't get it. That's it. James says that's the whole deal. You want something and you can't get it. And so this anger or whatever erupts and begins to destroy and James says it's so simple you want something you yearn for something you long for something you strongly desire something and you can't get it we can't get our own way and so we fight and so we argue and so forth we don't get our own way Um, what are some of the things that we really want these deep longings inside of us that cause these kinds of things well you know we want something like success and we define it maybe in a worldly way, and we can't get it, and so we grumble, we fight, we're mad because this person's standing in my way, so we think. But the real issue is 
this value that we desire and yearn for and long for and so forth is deep down inside of us. We crave recognition. We long for intimacy. We long to belong. We just want to be happy. We want justice, whatever it is. But whenever you indulge yourself in any of these things to try to satisfy that appetite, you know what happens? The desire just increases. Isn't that true? Whenever you go after these things and try to satisfy them in the worldly value sense, the appetite just increases, and you're never satisfied. Right? We see it all the time. Maybe money is the best example. You know, you desire more money. The more you go after it, the more you desire it. Never, when do you say, all right, I got enough now? Nobody ever does that. Because when we try to satisfy these deep-seated desires that I think God planted in us, I think God wants us to have success. He wants us to have, you know, a sense of belonging and so forth. But he knows that those deep desires will only ever really be satisfied in a relationship with him. He wants us to feel secure, but he wants to be the source of that security. And he knows that, and he wants to satisfy those values through kingdom values. Uh, behind every quarrel is just simply, I'm not getting what I want. Jealousy and envy are easily misdirected onto people, but it's really God that we have the problem with, and he's the only one that can fix the inequities of life, and I would tell you that blaming other people only prolongs the agony of living like that. And so James says, here's the solution to all of this. <laughs> he says, you covet and can't obtain, you fight and quarrel, um, and then he says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You want success? You want security? Ask God. You want to satisfy those deep desires that I believe God has planted in us? They're, they're desires that are uh, in the image of himself. He says, come and ask me. I'll give you a salvation that will make you so secure that death itself, your last enemy, won't be able to touch, won't be able to even threaten, and so on and so forth. And you can go through all of these different values and see how God wants us to uh, come to him. And he says, you know, come to me, speak to me. Uh, what if those passions that are inside of us are designed to be satisfied by a relationship with God? And that he can satisfy those passions deep inside of us and we can become, you know, a less argumentative, less quarreling, less grumbling group of people. James goes on here in verses 3 and 4. He says, then sometimes you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Oh, God, please bless me with more money. When really what I'm saying is I really want to meet that need for security. And God says, well, I'm not going to give you more money because I don't care how much money you get, you'll never feel secure until you know me. And so you ask to spend it on your passions, and I don't answer and don't give you those worldly things to try to meet those needs because they will never work. That's not how it works. He says, so you ask and don't receive because you ask wrong to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Why, when you're a part of the kingdom of God, do you still look for the kingdom of this world to satisfy you? You adulterous people, James says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And when we keep insisting on the kingdom, when the focus of our life is on the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of God, we make ourselves enemies of God. When we keep looking for the kingdom of this world to satisfy those deepest desires, we ignore the kingdom of God. And you have to ask the question in these two kingdoms, which kingdom is first? 
which kingdom more defines my identity in my everyday living? Is it the reality of my relationship with God that satisfies these deep desires? Or am I striving so hard to find the satisfaction I yearn for in the kingdom of this world? And do I find myself fighting and arguing and quarreling and grumbling, grumbling and crabbing and all the rest of it? And then look what he, James says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why? Because the God, small g, God of this world is Satan himself, the Bible tells us. And so you have to decide, you know, where am I going to get my identity? Who really am I? How do I live my everyday life? Am I focused on the kingdom of God or am I focused on the kingdom of this world? And then verse 5 is a killer. Verse 5 is a killer. It says, uh, do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says God yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? Now who's jealous? God. After God pays this huge price to give us the kingdom of heaven, after he sacrifices his son, pays this, puts his very spirit inside of us, we still look to the world to satisfy our desires. And so uh, James says, you know, do you think it's of no purpose that the scripture says that God yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? What does God do when he's ticked off? Because we are still looking to the values of this world to satisfy the desires that God put. Instead of, you know, uh, glorying in the spirit and in our salvation and in the gifts that God has given us. Well, here's what God does. I love this verse 6. He gives more grace. <laughs> Don't you love that? He gives more grace. He doesn't argue and grumble and pout and all this stuff. No, he just gives more grace. He just keeps giving more grace. Uh, we have to ask, you know, which kingdom is going to dominate? And uh, now we're back to the original uh, principle in our story uh, that our story is supposed to illustrate. You know, bring your deepest desires and your unmet needs to your heavenly Father, First uh, Peter 5, because he cares for you. Verse 6 and 7, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, be last. Think of yourself as a receiver of unending grace, in need of unending grace. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Think of yourself as last, and someday you'll be first. It's the principle that the story illustrates. And then look, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He understands the desires and the passions in your heart. He understands what you need. He's your father. He's your heavenly father. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He understands. And so when we come back to our story, we realize, you know, um, in the Bible, the truth of the matter is that God doesn't owe any of us anything. Every time we're envious or jealous and we start thinking that God owes us something because we're comparing ourselves to somebody else or whatever, uh, we need to realize and remember that God doesn't owe us anything. God already gave us everything that we have. He gave us our life. He gave us his mercy. He gave us our salvation and so on, none of which is deserved. He gave us forgiveness. He gives us his wisdom. He gives us his patience. He gave us his son. Paul says in Romans, you know, if God did not spare his son, do you think he's going to hold back anything that would be good for you? He's already given us everything. He doesn't owe us anything. And the truth is, we owe him everything. And we've been 
uh, given what we need the most. And when we're jealous, when we're envious, when we're trying to hold on to a debt that God does not owe us, uh, we suffer for it. Envy feeds on the lie that God owes us something, and God's acceptance of us came at a great expense. And we have to understand, you know, it's all of grace. It's all a gift. It all comes because of his love. And I think when we get that, jealousy and envy turns into thankfulness. When your focus is on the kingdom of God and you think about all that God has done for you and how he doesn't owe you anything, that jealousy and envy begins to fade and thankfulness becomes in its place. We begin to be thankful when our focus is on the kingdom of God and what God is the great salvation and all that's included, all the blessings, all the benefits, that envy and jealousy of other people begins to dissolve into thankfulness for all God has blessed us with. What's the solution to envy and to jealousy? It's thankfulness. And it's a kingdom value, thankfulness. And when we get that, I think that that becomes a reality. And so back to our story in Matthew chapter 20, remember verse 11 and 12, and on receiving their denarius, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last people only work for an hour and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm just doing, I'm not doing you any wrong. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last workers as I gave to you. Isn't that my business? And then verse 15 is such a crucial verse. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you, listen to this, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you, after having received one blessing after another, resent me being generous to somebody else? Do you begrudge me my generosity after you've been a recipient of incredible generosity, grace, undeserved favor in your life? Now you're going to begrudge me because I give it to the next person? Who are you and who am I, God is saying in this parable. It's such a significant, um, such a significant uh, value. Now, I, I think, you know, even if you're not a businessman, you know that... Um, what Jesus describes here is not a sustainable business model, right, in terms of worldly values. You cannot pay a person who only works an hour the same as you pay somebody who works 12 hours. Well, number one, you'll go broke. You just can't afford to do that, right? But we're not talking about worldly values. We're talking about kingdom values. Not only that, but if you do that, you'll create labor disputes, and you'll be accused of being unjust and so forth. But in the kingdom of God, the values are very different. God is the master, and we're all called to work in his vineyard, and God is generous, generous. Uh, why would we be jealous of his generosity? Why would we resent his generosity to the next person when we have received so fully and richly this great salvation of his generosity? We should be overwhelmed with thankfulness and thrilled that he treats the next person with the same generosity. So as I mentioned, some people think this story is really directed at the Jewish people because the Jewish people wouldn't accept Jesus and they were jealous when Jesus came and he just freely welcomed up, you know, the kingdom to us Gentiles. Jesus came and said, you know, you and I, we can be full-fledged members of the kingdom of God, just like that. And the Jews were like, wait a minute, you know, we've been the chosen people for 2,000 years here. 
You know, we're God's choice people, and we've been at this for a couple thousand years, and that should count for something. We're better than them. And in order for them to really take part in the kingdom of God, they've got to first become like us. They've got to get circumcised. They've got to obey the law. They've got to do this and that. And Jesus is like, no. No, they can freely come based on my generosity, based on my grace, based on the undeserved favor that I'm going to go to the cross and just give out forgiveness and so forth. And, and the Gentiles are just going to be welcomed then, you know. They get to be full-fledged members of the kingdom of God. And the Jews are like, you know, what, what about us? What about our history? Like Peter, what's in it for me? We've left all and followed you. Don't we deserve more? Don't, aren't we like special class in the kingdom of God because of all our sacrifices and so forth? It seems to me uh, that um, a good uh, illustration of what Jesus is talking about in this parable is the other story he tells about the prodigal son. You know, the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, the kid who squandered everything ends up being first at the end of the story. And the faithful, uh, you know, older brother, he ends up being last. And he was the good one. And the other one was a screw-up. And so, you know, I think in this story, the Gentiles are kind of like the prodigal son. But remember the prodigal son, he was humbled. He was humbled. He saw himself as messed up. And he was coming back to the father like a child. And he was asking for forgiveness. And I'll just be a slave someplace. If I can just have food, I'll be happy, you know. And out of that humility, he became first. And he got the father's robe. And he got the ring. And he got the party and so forth. And the older brother who says, man, I've been faithful. I didn't mess up like that other kid. And what's in it for me? You know, kind of Peter's question. And he ends up being last. He never comes to the party. No one deserves God's favor. It's all undeserved. In a moment, we're going to go over to the communion table and we're going to think about the sacrifice that God made on our behalf once again. And uh, nobody deserves Jesus dying in our place. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so what are some takeaway truths of this story? Uh, just a couple. First of all, it seems to me, should be obvious, God is calling people to work in his vineyard. There are a lot of people standing around idle. There is so much to do in the kingdom of God. There is so much to do. We, we, we prayed about it this morning, how our culture in America is just drifting away from God. There is so much to be done, so much to be said. And God is calling people to serve in his kingdom. And so have you heard his call to you? And have you responded? Do you know what God is asking you to do? Or are you just standing around, being idle, without serving in the kingdom. And then second, it seems pretty obvious too to me that it's never too late to respond to the call. Even if it's five o'clock, how old are you? If you were to take your whole life, let's say 80 years, 90 years, and scrunch it into one 12-hour day, where are you at in your day? And uh, even if you're an old geezer, right, and you're at five o'clock, let me tell you, it's not too late to answer the call, to come to work in the vineyard. There's so much to be done, and there's room for everybody. What time of day is it for you? And uh, even if you're old, you'll be richly rewarded. And then third, um, it just seems to me that the master, God, in Jesus' story, is more interested in the workers than he is in getting the job done. I don't think it's about the grapes. I think it's about the people. And that the master is out there calling people into his vineyard because he cares about the people more than he cares about the grapes getting picked. This story is about the unmerited love of God. It's a story about the grace of God. It's what's on display here is the generosity of God and people who resent the grace and generosity 
of God. That's what's on display here. And God is first, God's the first generous giver. And Jesus, the son, is the chief generous giver. He gave his life. And the Holy Spirit is the ongoing expression of God's generosity in us. God always goes first. And God is generous. And, uh, and he's first in being generous. And when we receive that grace and we become thankful, the kingdom of God gets into focus. And the kingdom of this world begins to fade. And the values change radically. And that's why the world doesn't get us. That's why the world didn't get Jesus. Because the values in the kingdom of this world are the exact opposite of the values of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we so appreciate these stories that Jesus told. It's easy for us to keep them in our mind, keep them in our head. They're such simple stories. But they convey such profound truths, such deep truths, truths that would be hard for us to explain apart from the stories. And so I thank you for this story about the workers who are called into your vineyard at all different stages and yet all receive from your generosity. And I pray, Father, if there's envy and jealousy in any of us, that we would recognize that as we focus upon your kingdom and that we draw more of our identity from your kingdom than the kingdom of this world, that that jealousy and that envy would give way to thankfulness for what you've given to us, for the generosity that you've shown us. And as we move over to the communion table and we think about the sacrifice of the living God putting his son on the cross and taking all of our sin, all of the offenses, Father, that uh, mark our lives, all of the uh, idiotic thoughts and uh, the bad actions and poor choices and all the things that offend you because you made us to be like you and we're not. And you took all of that stuff, put it on Jesus and let him pay the price for it so that we could be reconciled to you. It's a gift beyond our comprehension. And I pray you'll help us to focus on it so that envy and jealousy will dissolve into thankfulness. And as a result, we'll be set free, Father, to live more like kingdom kids in order that you might be truly glorified. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.